This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. Today on the show, Jamila Woods will talk about her latest album, where each track is named after an iconic black or brown artist. I don't think of them so much as biographical songs about the people, but more so each song is a self-portrait of myself through the lenses of each of those people. We'll hear how a fire that destroyed one of the world's only facilities that makes a key ingredient to make vinyl records will impact the record industry. Everybody knew that if something like this happened, that it was going to affect the vinyl industry in a big way. We'll learn about a producer who recorded dozens and dozens of musicians in the Pacific Northwest and went on to develop the musical sound of the region. Carney was among the first, if not the first, to push the envelope in the form of what you, what's known as tape saturation and distortion. We'll also hear from a popular Icelandic musician on how he juggles the decision to sing in English or Icelandic. Yeah, I always sing a few songs in Iceland because I just... I just feel so much better singing and and more connection to them in in that way, you know. But first, a story about music, sexuality, and the South. So the South is considered to be the conservative Bible belt of the U.S., but it's also home to the highest percentage of LGBT people in the country. KEXP's B. Egan spoke with three LGBTQ musicians from the South to find out how Southern culture and their sexuality impacted their upbringing and ultimately their music. If you separated the United States into five sections, the West Coast, Midwest, Northeast, Mountain Region, and South, the South has the highest percentage of LGBT people living there at 35%. That's according to a 2016 study released by UCLA's law school. This is a statistic bluegrass musician Justin Hiltner is well aware of. It's 35% of LGBTQ um, uh, folks in this country live in the South, uh, the Southeast of the United States and in um, Appalachia. And um, a lot of people don't realize that, uh, especially given the overarching kind of narratives of queerness that were given by um, the media. Justin Hiltner grew up in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains in Ohio and now lives in Nashville, Tennessee. He grew up in a conservative Christian family and was homeschooled for faith reasons. He says music was the only thing that got him out of the house. Figuratively and literally, like it was just, you know, getting me out of Licking County, Ohio, and I just started like bumping up against more and more people. Um, Just through that is when I started kind of starting to have relationships with with people who, you know, didn't come from the same background as me. It was the only thing um, was, you know, playing this ice cream social or playing this nursing home gig or playing this, the Millersport Sweet Corn Festival. Hiltner started playing banjo at age six. However, as a teenager, he realized that banjo pigeonholed him into bluegrass. Later, he was unsure of his future as a career banjo player, as bluegrass isn't typically a space for gay people. Part of that is just thinking, like, being gay kind of naturally precludes me from being in this space. Hiltner has gone on to become the first openly gay man to be nominated for an award by the International Bluegrass Music Association. He says LGBTQ representation in bluegrass is important, especially considering there are so many LGBTQ folks who live in the region where most bluegrass is made. So I think that as queer people, especially in roots music, given its ties to the South, kind of take ownership of our own stories, we're reminding folks like we exist and we exist here in these places that 
everybody kind of forgets we do. And there's a sense of pride in that. After all, Southerners do tend to be quite loyal to the region. I love the South and like I have always enjoyed living in the South. That's Amethyst Kia, who grew up in East Tennessee. She is a songwriter and multi-instrumentalist. Most recently, she has been a part of the supergroup Our Native Daughters. I don't creep around, I stand proud and free because I'm black She says despite stereotypes that the South is homogenous and conservative, There are so many gay people here. (laughs) There's a lot of gay people. But it took her a while to realize there's a large LGBTQ population in the South. Kia says she was out as gay when she was younger, but went back into the closet in her late teen years when she moved from a large Southern town to a small one. When we moved to Johnson City, I was, I went back in the closet for like seven years Mm -hmm. because I was like really... You know, I was too fragile to have any sort of criticism towards me. I wasn't going to be able to handle it. That story is echoed in Nashville singer-songwriter Becca Minkari. She was born in New York, but eventually moved to Florida and Charlottesville, Virginia, as a teen and young adult. She says she also went back into the closet when she was living in the South. It was like a time where I went back in the closet, actually. I went through like this first relationship where, you know, coming out was so hard for me. And it was so, you know, I lost so many people and I lost a lot of um, my safety nets, I guess. And then people would always say who were really against, you know, being gay, being openly gay you know, oh, this is like bad for you. You know, it's just always, this is bad for you. This is like, this is dangerous. This is um, a lie. This is not who you are. Mancari says she didn't start writing music until she moved to Virginia, which she found to be a place that inspired her creatively. The South is just like, as a writer, I don't know if you could find a better, a better place filled with ghosts and filled with like the human experience. The South and sexuality weave subtly into the music of both Becca Mancari and Amethyst Kia. You can hear it in Man Carey's song, Waiting So Long. Why are you living in the dark? Why are you waiting so long, waiting so long, waiting so long, baby? And both Man Carey's and Kia's music are impacting other LGBTQ folks, like when Man Carey performed a show in Mississippi and mentioned a story about her girlfriend. I saw people walk away. You know, I saw head shake, and then I saw some kids who were just like, like, oh my God, I can't believe she said that. Like in a good way, you know, like, and then one of the girls who was working um, as a stage crew literally ran up to me after the show and hugged me and just said, I just called my girlfriend. And I said, that girl just told a crowd of Mississippi folk that she was a gay woman. I can't believe she just did that. I'm so like, thank you so much. Kids come up to me and say like, you know, uh, your record helped me come out. Like your record helped me get through coming out and my parents rejecting me. Meanwhile, Kia says she was playing a show in the UK and an interaction from an audience member made her realize that despite who you are singing about, whether it be a man or a woman, music can transcend boundaries. After the show, this middle-aged white English woman came up to me and she said, I know that you're a gay black woman from America and I'm an old white woman from from England, but I I heard and felt 
and related to every single song that you sang. And that is, that's what music is. Mancari agrees. She says she's seen some pretty diverse crowds at her shows and seen very different people bonding through the music together, no matter their background or sexuality. You know, I'll have like a 50-year-old, you know, white male, straight, identifying male in the audience who's like a big fan. And then, you know, I have a, a pretty big queer audience of younger women and are identifying women or non-binary. And so it's pretty interesting to see them uh, standing and singing the songs right beside each other. It's, it's kind of bizarre. It just, for some reason, the music were, seems to speak to a broader audience. At the end of the day, the South is a much more diverse place than many might think. Again, it's home to the highest percentage of LGBT folks in the country, and more and more we're seeing musicians from the South becoming open about their sexuality. Music is a tool for community, and these artists are impacting other marginalized people in the South and across the nation. For Sound and Vision, I'm B. Egan. This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. You might want to hold my comb when you find out what I'm made of. Jamila Woods is a musician and poet from Chicago. Her latest album is a fascinating fusion of her personal story and stories of icons who have come before. Here's her conversation with KEXP's Cheryl Waters during an in-studio performance this week. Your new album is incredible. It's titled Legacy Legacy, all caps and exclamation points after each legacy. And on it, you've built a sonic monument to iconic black and brown artists and Each track bears the name of an artist who's inspired you, and such a range there from visual artists like Jean-Michel Basquiat and Frida Kahlo. You've got musicians Muddy Waters, Miles Davis, Betty Davis, Mm -hmm. which is such a great inclusion, and then writers and poets, Zora Neale Hurston, Sonia Sanchez, James Baldwin, um, and Nikki Giovanni's on there, Mm -hmm. Octavia Butler, Sun Ra. I mean, the list just goes on and on. It gets more exciting. I imagine you must have had an even longer list of artists who inspired you how did you you know settle on the ones that you chose for this record yeah that must have been challenging yeah I tried to keep it an organic process you're right I definitely had a list a longer list of artists um more poets on the list um and but I tried not to force it like if it wasn't coming I tried not to I tried to just focus on the songs that felt more easy and I worked with a producer um who's based in Chicago named Slot A and we really had a good relationship of not just trying to make the music but to really have conversations about the people who inspired each song and what they meant to me and what I was trying to say also about myself through through each song. The lyrics on Legacy Legacy are a masterful feat and I know that you did a lot of research and that sounds like a lot of fun to me especially when you see the list of people that you wrote about and it sounds like you referenced essays and documentaries and interviews. Tell me about that process. Yeah, I think I had just gone on this rabbit hole on YouTube, as we often do. Um, And I was just, I love watching interviews of artists who I like. And I was noticing this pattern of amazing um, black artists and, you know, people like Muddy Waters, Basquiat, and kind of back in that time, you didn't see a lot of people of color interviewing people of color. And the questions they would ask them would sometimes have these sort of like subtext to them or kind of like be taking subtle shots or like kind of trying to 
prod them in little ways. And I observed watching how they would deal with that. And it, it was really empowering to me as an artist. You're always trying to present yourself and trying to protect, you know, your individuality and who you really are. And it was just really inspiring to watch those interviews and particularly Muddy and Basquiat were inspired kind of directly by quotes that, that Basquiat and Muddy Water said in those interviews. And then sometimes it was a lot more organic than that. Like I saw a picture of Frida Kahlo's house with Diego Rivera and it's two houses separated by a bridge. I was like, goals instantly like that's that just related to me instantly so sometimes it was like more intense research and sometimes it was more just like a a connection that I felt to some aspect of that person that I wanted to express something about myself through them You're telling a story through your written word and your voice. And how did you approach writing a song about a person? I didn't really try to write about about any of them. I think that would have been way harder. Um, I don't think of them so much as biographical songs about the people, but more so each song is a self-portrait of myself through the lenses of each of those people. And it allowed me to kind of be more vulnerable and honest about some of the things that I felt and that I have experienced because I felt almost like standing on the shoulders of ancestors in some cases or elders um, in some cases of just these people who kind of gave me the strength to tell these stories that I don't think I had a, a way into them before. I heard that the title Legacy Legacy was inspired by a collage that you saw at a friend's house. Tell me about that piece of artwork and what particularly struck you about it and you knew I've got the title of my record. Yeah, it was funny because I actually had been calling, I had like a working title of the album Songs About People. I had some good friends in my life who were like, um, that's not, that's a crappy title. You need to like think about that some more. And so I just happened to be like, the next week at my friend's house and Krista Franklin has this letterpress of a quote from a Margaret Burroughs poem that says legacy legacy. Um, and the poem is that she's referencing is all about, it's written kind of like to black young people and all about like, look at these people who have come before you and you know, what will your legacy be now that you have all of these people who have um, come before you. And when I saw that, I was like, wow, I recognize it from the poem right away. And I was like, that's what I'm doing. I'm not writing songs about people. I'm writing kind of the imprint that all of these people's legacies have had on me. And it's going to encourage me to find my own. So that's kind of, in a way, it makes sense to me that there's two. Because it's like the legacy that's come before and the legacy that I'm making. That sounds very empowering. Do you feel like you're kind of a different person after having gone through the experience of writing this and learning about all these people and how their work and their lives have influenced you and had an emotional connection with you? I definitely do. Like when we started rehearsing the songs, like with the band for the first time and arranging, I felt it just makes me feel really powerful performing these songs in a different way than I think um, some of my other music is also great to perform. But I definitely feel like it's channeling a different energy that has been really healthy for me. There must be a reason why. There must be a reason. Giovanni is, I heard the first song that you wrote inspired by poet Nikki Giovanni, mm-hmm. and I read that you teach her poem Ego Tripping um, to the students you work with, and I'm curious about your relationship with her work and also the work that you do with the Young Chicago Authors. 
Yeah, so um, when we when I teach poetry or when I, when I was working with young Chicago authors, it was always about like building a bridge between what students know already to what they might not know. So, for example, like I love to teach Kendrick Lamar's song "I" with Nikki Giovanni's "Ego Tripping" because it's all like we kind of talk about Nikki Giovanni's poem as like the first like battle rap. Like it's it's essentially just saying how dope she is, and from a but from a very like femme woman black woman perspective and so I think that's something I love about her work it's just there's so many tie-ins that can come so easily to hip-hop and things that young people already are familiar with um, but for me I really wanted to cover that poem and kind of think about what are the things that make me feel like the, the greatest things about myself I can kind of like brag on myself a little bit not just for the sake of bragging on myself but to kind of just carve out space and I think that's important for black women especially to do is just carve out space to appreciate ourselves you might want to hold my comb when you find out what I'm made of you might want to follow me and copy all of my mistakes you mentioned battle rap, and I read in one interview that you said Slade encouraged you all to watch some battle rap to kind of push through a writing block. Tell me a little bit yeah. about that. Um, that was when we were writing the song Baldwin, inspired um, by James Baldwin. And I was just thinking about moments of microaggression, both like interpersonally that I've experienced with white people, but also like looking at Chicago, all cities really, but the gentrification that's happening in certain neighborhoods and just the way that um, that just affects people on a daily basis. And he was saying, if you're trying to write a poem like or a song critiquing someone or like battling them, essentially, you have to almost love them. You have to know them to the point of loving them to really do it properly. You can't just come at it in a surface level way. So then I was reading all these articles about police brutality and like the, the fear of Black people, black men is at the root of a lot of that. Just the fear like the, of perceiving black people as a danger. And so trying to really connect to like, what are the emotions going on that's at the root of this violence and trying to kind of come at it from that. And so that's kind of like what the verses try to do in that song. And yeah, it's kind of just, I guess the battle rap just opened it up to, to not letting me get off so easy. Because it's easy to just rant about something that is bothering you or that you don't like. And so to work a little bit harder than that, to try to come at it from a place of empathy that can allow you to really get at the root of the issue and not not let it off, but just be really honest when you're addressing it. You don't get it, get it. You clutch on your purse, now you cross in the street. Brother caught your eye, now you call him police. You don't get it, get it. This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. 
That was Jamila Wood's song, Baldwin. She spoke with KEXP's Cheryl Waters during an in-studio performance at the station this week. Cheryl went on to ask Jamila Woods about her song, Zora. Yeah, that song is inspired by Zora Neale Hurston, and she has an essay called How It Feels to Be Colored Me. And in it, she says, um, she says, I feel most colored when I'm thrown against a sharp white background, talking about kind of when she went to college and was the only black person around. But then she also says, I feel most colored when I'm surrounded by other black people and we're laughing and like all of our laughs just like join in this chorus. So kind of this feeling of like how she defines her blackness. And I really related to that because I grew up in a neighborhood, Beverly in Chicago, that was mostly white and would often go, you know, to church, mostly black and just being trying to figure out where I fit. Um, always feeling like not black enough in one space or too black in another space. And so just that chorus line of you will never know everything, I will never know everything is really referring to no one can tell me what my blackness is or define it for me um, because I'm still discovering it and it's infinite and I'm still going to be discovering it my whole life. And so just kind of that mantra of self-acceptance and um, giving myself permission to be my full self, however that evolves. Must be disconcerting how I You've also talked in interviews about balancing the masculine and feminine, and tell me about a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think with the album, when I was ordering it and thinking of the flow, I just wanted to like front load it with feminine energy or just kind of make sure I was intentional with the order and putting Betty first, knowing that I have both many, Betty Davis and Miles Davis, just that I wanted to have that kind of flow first, but then in the Muddy and Miles songs, like, again, I'm not speaking as Muddy or Miles Davis. I'm harnessing that masculine energy. Like, when people talk about Miles Davis, they're like, he spoke so soft so that everyone would have to lean in so make sure they heard him. Like, it was just this power emanating from him. And I've noticed, I think for myself, I was realizing that I'm an introvert. I'm a quiet person, and in this industry that can sometimes be a challenge when you have to be the leader and you have to be the boss. And so I was trying to harness that energy in myself. So I wanted to include that energy, but not have it be like the prioritized energy and have like all of these Zora, Frida, Giovanni come first and then, and then have the masculine energy after that. Um, this is in my head that just I've, was a way of ordering it so that felt authentic yeah I feel like I can really connect to that as well when I read your sort of description of that that really resonated with me you know wanting to find that as well it's very powerful I'm also um was very captivated by Sun Ra and Octavia Butler I mean those are very interesting artists tell me what about them made you want to include those songs yeah, I think I've always been really interested in Afrofuturism 
and just the idea of envisioning black people in the future as a radical thing because often black people aren't gifted allowed a future um and so i think that's great about sun Ra with octavia and specifically i saw the pictures that went viral of her notebooks where she wrote down all of the goals that she had for herself and literally every single thing came true it was like i want to have a house for my mom i want to win this award every single thing and it was so specific and to me that was very powerful and and when I was reading her book, Kindred, which is all about this woman who kind of falls through a hole in a dimension and ends up in slavery times of of the house, the house of the white family who owned her ancestors. And so this is kind of convoluted, but basically after I read that book, I started researching like how black people would learn to read in slavery times and how it was literally like a crime stealing a book from someone's library to like teach yourself phonics like in a dark room and so just thinking of the history of black people in writing and how amazing it is to me that however many years later Octavia Butler used writing to bring her goals to life and then being a teacher a teacher working with young people looking at the ways in which still I have students who are insecure because they don't speak proper grammar or they they have they don't get an a plus on their essay because you know they struggle with writing and so just thinking of the ways that all of those things um just wanting to create a song that's kind of like you are already everything you're the truth already you're a fact already no one can take that away from you it's kind of a song to myself but to also to my students or to anyone who kind of doubts themselves in that way because I think yeah, I think Octavia Butler is just a great example of someone who manifested things through only what she had. That was Jamila Woods speaking with KEXP's Cheryl Waters during an in-studio performance at the station this week. Here's Jamila Woods' song, Octavia. Don't ever let a textbook scare This is Sound and Vision. In February, a massive warehouse fire in California decimated a facility known to create 70 to 85 percent of the lacquer plates used in vinyl production in the world. So lacquer is a main component to make vinyl records. There were only two facilities in the entire world that made lacquer. So now that the California facility is gone, the only facility left is in Japan. To understand more on how vinyl records are made and what this fire means for the record industry is Mike Dixon and Chris Dorr of Mobile Vinyl Recorders. Hello. Hi. Hello. So you both know how to make vinyl records by hand. Tell us a little bit more about just how your business works. This is Mike. Um, Our business actually cuts uh, masters using polycarbonate plastic. We don't use lacquers all that often and i guess not at all anymore but the way that a vinyl record is made in a production facility like a pressing plant you would cut your lacquer master 
which is your your very first record and then they would make plates of it and put it on a big industrial press and and stamp out however many copies that you wanted to make so basically it's like lacquer is made for like you know high production vinyl right lacquer the lacquer is cut as sort of the prototype or the very first copy of the record and then they make molds to mass produce it imagine that you're making a barbie or a gi joe somebody has to go in and make the very first one to know what it's going to look like and then they'll they'll make molds of that so the lacquer is that very first item that the molds are made from Got it. But, you know, when you heard the news about this fire, what do you think this fire overall will mean to the vinyl record business? Well, I think that it's going to make it a lot more difficult to make uh, short run records uh, for bands that want to make 100 to 500 copies. I think that the shortage of the lacquers is going to make pressing plants probably up their prices because the, the first component has become so much more scarce. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also interesting that this is happening at a time that last year we saw like a 15% surge in record sales. Like, do do you think that that's going to mean, you know, just record sales in general are going to go down next year? I think maybe a record availability might go down. And because of that, there is going to be a dip in sales. I don't I don't think it's necessarily going to affect the demand side. But I think the type of records people are going to buy are going to be different. You're going to have less local punk bands or indie rock bands or whatever being able to press records th- all you're going to be able to get are more copies of Led Zeppelin 4 or the new Bony Bear or something and what is, what is lacquer itself like what is it made out of uh the material is called nitrocellulose lacquer and uh it's similar uh to say nail polish um it's or lacquer paint, but it is very refined. It contains some, uh, let's say, kind of secret sauce chemicals. Um, and it's they're very highly guarded recipes. And that is enrobed over a um, highly smoothed and polished aluminum disc, which is the substrate. Um, and the lacquer is soft enough that it allows the uh, cutting stylus to cut into it in such a fashion that you get a really nice result out of it um, and and really true to the sound you're putting in. You know, when we talk about just like what lacquer like contains, there's also word that, you know, that the facility in California might not rebuild because of environmental laws in that state. Do you think that that it will stop, you know, this production facility from, you know, being able to rebuild? And, you know, if we only now have one plant in the whole world, do you actually think that we will only have one plant from here on out? I, I know of at least three different organizations that are working furiously to get uh, Lacquer Masters back online. I don't really believe that Apollo will rebuild, especially not in California. But there are there have been people that have been in the process of of building new plants. This has been the dirty little secret of the vinyl industry for years. Everybody knew that if something like this happened, that it was going to affect the vinyl industry in a big way. And there have been people trying to get into the game because Apollo was not able to keep up with the demand, even when the the facility was, was working. 
So there, there are, <clears throat> there are going to be plants coming online, but I think it's going to be at least a year before anybody is really ready to roll on it. I've been speaking with Mike Dixon and Chris Dorr of Mobile Vinyl Recorders about the future of vinyl. This follows the fire that demolished the Apollo Masters facility in California that makes the majority of lacquer discs in the world that are used to make vinyl records. Mike and Chris, thanks so much for chatting. Great. Thank you. Thank you. This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. Seattle's Carney Barton was a recording engineer for more than 50 years. He captured the sound of everything from local high school musicals to big names like Quincy Jones and Ann Wilson of Heart. Barton passed away in 2012, but his work behind the boards is highlighted on a new compilation titled Carney Barton, Architect of the Northwest Sound. KEXP's Hans Anderson caught up with some of the people behind that album and found that while you might not know his name, Barton's impact on Seattle is still felt today. And I don't know what we have in here. Um, talisman? John Vallier is looking through a box of reel-to-reel tapes. He's in the basement of the University of Washington's Suslo Library, standing among shelves packed with more boxes, identical to this one each one holding a handful of the 7,000 reel-to-reel tapes left to the library by Carney Barton before his death in 2012, each a small story of Barton's life. Vallier pulls out a recording of The Frantics and looks for the song Werewolf. I believe that's a Frantics tune. And that's, um, if you hear that one, that's Carney playing the role of the werewolf. So he does the... Relations, <laughs> and uh, it's pretty impressive. He knew how to do that. Vallier is the curator of the ethnomusicology collection at UW and says that Barton can be heard on all of these recordings, though he's not usually playing the part of the werewolf. Instead, he's crafting the raw, unprocessed sound he's most associated with. Even into the 2000s, Barton relied almost entirely on older analog recording equipment. Lots of reel-to-reel tapes, vacuum tube microphones. It may not be the perfect sound, you know, according to the audio engineering society or whatever, but it's Carney's sound and you're in Carney's space. So, yeah, it sounds like you're in Carney's studio. You get what you get and you get kind of an honest representation of what went down that day. Valier says that his recordings would be lauded for this quality. In this archive, there's also a trove of historically important recordings. You can see or hear, really, Seattle music scenes develop. Vallier pulls out another tape. Oh, here's the Daybreaks, this one. So this is, you know, uh, Ann Wilson stuff. Round the station, darkness falls. Silence lays against the walls. And a girl waiting there with gentle hands for a man. Wilson would go on to front the band Heart. But before that, she was a kid from Bellevue releasing her music on Carney Barton's Topaz Records. Barton also worked for Quincy Jones and The Sonics. Rumor has it there's an early recording of Jimi Hendrix in this collection, though it hasn't been found, at least not yet. There's also something a bit more difficult to grasp down in the basement of Suslow Library, the story of Barton himself. Vallier only met Barton a few times, including when he took these tapes out of Barton's home studio. But he was a singular figure, Vallier says. The artists he recorded are eclectic, reflecting the welcoming atmosphere Barton created in his studio. He was known around the music community for his famous oatmeal cookies. Sometimes I'll get emails or people will call and say, yeah, I recorded with Carney back in the day. 
and it was a really great experience. And I miss his cookies. And it's always this kind of thread. So, and he had a lot of cats. So it's like cookies, cats, um, old tube microphones. You know, I mean, it was like this kind of like one package of all this kind of analog gear plus the, the welcoming environment. He loved his cats. He loved to bake cookies. That's Stan Traeger. He took classes from Barton at North Seattle College in the early 90s. As part of those classes, Traeger worked in Barton's studio. Eclectic or scope and variety doesn't begin to cover the gamut of the the range of different things that you were going to work on. You know, one week it'd be a steel drum band of like, you know, 10 to 12 musicians and 10 to 12 steel drums or another week an opera singer or something like that. That eclectic taste and flexibility in genre can be seen throughout Barton's career. His first commercially successful recording was the song Mr. Blue by Olympia-based vocal group The Fleetwoods. That song hit number one on the U.S. Hot 100 in November of 1959. And soon after that, he gets involved with this rock and roll thing. By the early 1960s, Barton became the engineer for the garage rock group, the Sonics. Since his that heyday, that initial success post-Fleetwoods, he really became synonymous with this garage rock aesthetic. Barton's work with groups like the Sonics and the Whalers became his defining legacy. He's often credited as helping to develop their heavily distorted sound. Carney was among the first, if not the first, to push the envelope in the form of what you, what's known as tape saturation and distortion. I mean, sure, the Sonics amplifiers are distorting, but it's also getting an extra bit of distortion as far as how hard and heavy and saturated Carney was willing to print it to tape. So that was an aspect that he was among the first to take it that far. That sound influenced groups like Nirvana and Mudhoney. Traeger even goes so far as to call Barton the godfather of grunge. You know, when grunge became a thing, he was acknowledged, and there was a few stories as the godfather of grunge, if you will. Barton wasn't necessarily a huge fan of rock. In fact, he was a known opera buff. But that's what made him unique. He'd record nearly anyone if they paid for the studio time, and sometimes even if they didn't. I was able to ask him directly, did you have or do you have any challenge reconciling the proverbial Saturday night music and the Sunday morning music? Um, And he said, no, not at all. As long as they pay their bills, I'm up for anything. Barton continued to record almost anyone who asked into the 2000s, which is when Matt Sullivan of Light in the Attic Records first heard of him. At the time, Sullivan was looking for Seattle R&B and funk for Light in the Attic's Weedle's Groove compilation. Barton, in his vast library of music, had some of the recordings Sullivan was looking for, and a whole lot more. It's like a pretty phenomenal uh, time capsule of, you know, Northwest history. Sullivan, who became close to Carney Barton in his later years, worked with both Dan Traeger and John Vallier to release a new compilation of recordings by Barton called Carney Barton, Architect of the Northwest Sound. The album has recordings of the Beacon Hill First Baptist Church. Ooh, 
There's a song by Seattle's Dave Lewis, who laid the groundwork for rock and roll. There are even sitar covers of pop songs. In all of these songs, Sullivan finds a common thread. His recordings never got, um, they, they didn't get flashy. You know, they didn't, they didn't feel uh, someone had taken off the natural sound of it. You know, it, had, it always had a very you know, genuine authenticity to it, and that was very much like him as a person. Sullivan also says that Barton was a true Seattleite. He loved hydroplane races and seafair. He talked about watching the Space Needle being built outside of his old studio. And his long-lived career here created a vast archive of sounds from the Pacific Northwest, which John Vallier, back at the University of Washington, says is necessary for a place like Seattle today. We're changing really rapidly as a city. Our identity is changing, maybe for the better, maybe for the worse. But in order to get a better sense of who we've been, you know, hopefully that will help us on our journey forward. Oh, and one other thing. Plus, there's really great music to listen to also (laughs) in the collection. It's hard to sum up someone's 50-year career, but here are just a few descriptions to leave you with. Carney Barton, architect of the Northwest Sound, godfather of grunge, Seattleite, cat lover, teacher, engineer, mentor, documentarian. For Sound and Vision, I'm Hans Anderson. This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. Icelandic artist Ausgeish is considered to be Iceland's biggest music exporter since Sigur Rós of Monsters and Men and Bjork. He's also popular at home. When he released his first album in 2012, one out of every ten people in Iceland bought the record. And he's now out with his fourth album. It's called Bury the Moon. Ausgeish will perform at Seattle's Neptune Theater on Friday, and he joins me now to talk about language, lyrics, and music. Hello. Hello. Hey. So this album, Bury the Moon, was released in two separate versions. So in one, you're singing entirely in English, and in the other, you're singing entirely in Icelandic. And I'm assuming that these songs probably first started off in Icelandic and then were translated to English. And I'm wondering, like, why put out two separate albums? I mean, they're the same songs, they sound similar, but just sung in two separate languages. Why was it important to you to put out an album in English? Is it is it like, you know, in order to get more commercial success, more worldwide appeal that you need to be putting out an album in English? Yeah, that was pretty much the idea in the beginning. We made the first album in Icelandic and, and we got some interest from labels around the world and and we had this uh, idea to um, make the album in English and and release it worldwide and see see what would happen when we thought like that would maybe um, yeah people people would uh, enjoy it more if they actually could understand what the the person was singing about you know so so you'll be performing in the U.S. throughout the month of March. And when you're performing in the U.S., how do you decide during you know your live performances which songs you'll sing in English and which ones you'll sing in Icelandic? 
it, it sort of depends on uh, like where I am in the world actually um, like the past few days we've been performing in Scandinavia like Denmark and Norway and Sweden and I just know uh, from uh, experience you know going there uh, a few times that people like to hear uh, me sing in Icelandic much more there so I I tend to sing most of the show actually in Icelandic there and then now today we're in Germany and and I'm going to sing most of the set in English here and and the same goes for the states and you know when I'm in Australia and so yeah it, it sort of depends on where I am in the world yeah I always sing a few songs in Icelandic because I just I just feel so much better singing and, and more connection to them in, in that way, you know, wherever I am in the world. So, yeah. And I understand that that most of the lyrics in your songs are written by other people, whether that be your guitarist and also your father, who is an Icelandic poet. Is that the case on this album where, where a lot of other folks are writing the lyrics for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, my, my father and Julius, who um, you mentioned, I still work with them very closely. But, um, yeah, it's become much... It's become a different kind of process now. You know, it's more more kind of a collaborative thing now than it used to be. For example, I worked with my father in writing lyrics for like four or five songs on this um, this new album, and and for those songs, I had idea you know ideas for the songs and what to uh, what I wanted to talk about, and um, and he sort of went with that, you know. And uh, the same goes with Julius, you know, and and he's. He's in my band, you know, he plays guitar and sings uh, backing vocals. And so when we're on, on tour, we, we get a chance to like work together on lyrics and stuff, you know. Is there a song on the album that you did kind of that more collaborative um, approach that a song, you know, that, that you worked with either your father or your guitarist with that, that you really liked how it turned out? Yeah, um, in particular, like um, there's a song called Eventide which is pretty special and, and uh, personal to me and something that, uh, that and that's a lyric that my father wrote and and that's about um, a family member that passed away some years ago and so we can easily relate to the, that kind of same feeling and, and emotions even Yeah, Youth is, is one of my favorites as well, how that turned out. My father uh, actually wrote, wrote that from like his perspective of me when I was like nine or ten and, and the, his memories of me as a kid from this nostalgic kind of perspective. I won't forget the years when boundless love and If 
the cases is that a lot of the lyrics you're either writing collaboratively or other people writing it for you. you know, what is that process like for you as a singer to to bring these stories and lyrics to life musically? You know, because I feel like your voice is also very, very expressive. And so for you, you know, when you think about, you know, creating, you know, melodies to these lyrics and songs, how do you bring these lyrics to life? Do the lyrics come first? Do the melodies come first for you? What is that process like? Yeah, so I prefer uh, writing the song first than the melody and, and all that goes with that, you know. Um, and then I would write some lyrics down and, and write like the structure of the lyrics and the syllables and, and how I want it to flow. And I do that before I go to work on the actual lyric with my father or or Julius. And nowadays I also like to have like an idea of what I want to talk about in, in, or what I want to be expressed in, in those lyrics, you know. I've been speaking with Icelandic artist Ausgeish. He'll perform at Seattle's Neptune Theater on Friday, March 6th. This is Sound and Vision. It's a podcast, but it's also a broadcast show that airs Saturday mornings on KEXP from 7 till 9 a.m. Pacific. You can listen to it live at kexp.org or on our mobile app. The broadcast version of the show is longer than this podcast, and last Saturday on the show, we talked about the future of Seattle's Bumbershoot Festival. It's been around for almost 50 years, and there was worry this year that the festival wouldn't happen because mega promoter AEG didn't renew their contract. But a local organization stepped in, and you can hear the conversation about what that will mean for the future of Bumbershoot on the KEXP archive. It's located at kexp.org. Click on Saturday, February 29th, and scroll through Sound and Vision to hear that conversation. But it was that conversation that inspired this week's listener question. Because we were talking about Bumbershoot, we asked listeners what their favorite moment from a music festival is. Here were some of their answers. Hi, this is Summer from Ashland, Oregon. When I was living in Los Angeles as a kid, I went to see Lollapalooza 91. I was 13. And we went to see Jane's Addiction and Susie and the Banshees. And I think Susie was on, and Perry Farrell from Jane's Addiction came walking up the side lawn and stopped, and everybody was talking to him. And I just kind of stood up. I was really shy, but I stood up, and I kind of got in the crowd and was kind of next to him, but behind another guy. But he saw me, and he put his arm around me, and he gave me a kiss on the cheek. Hello, this is Eric Downs from Seattle. have a good story of our live shows that we go to Summerfest every summer in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, one of our favorite shows was seeing Michael Franti and Spearhead live. He was walking around the uh, crowd with his guitar and singing to a couple. Came to my wife and I and my daughters, and my wife had just lost her hair due to a allergic reaction. And was bald as a cue ball, and he stopped and sang to my wife and I and the girls for at least a song and a half and absolutely made our summer. 
And we still go back to Summerfest every summer and humbly suggest if anybody wants to see good live shows to head out to Milwaukee. This one goes out to you and yours. My name is Sarah Kiesler. I am from Seattle, and my favorite music festival moment was at Bonnaroo in 2004 when I lost my keys at the Trey Anastasio show in the never-ending mud at that downpour of a festival, and the wallets of me and my boyfriend at the time were locked in my car. Um, so many festival goers came together for us and chipped in to make the festival a memorable experience. A woman gave me $20 for the Dollar Grilled Cheese tent. Uh, someone at the camp gave us a few rolls of toilet paper. A locksmith even ended up helping me for free and was cool with me sending him a check once I got home. Um, it was a terrifying experience, but we lived through it and we came out really believing in the strength of the music community. And we still got to see Bob Dylan, Humphreys McGee, Wilco, some of our favorite bands. In particular, my favorite from that festival was Robert Randolph and the Family Band uh, playing I Need More Love on the slide guitar. Thanks to everyone for participating in this week's listener question, and thanks to you for listening. So this week, KEXP is kicking off our spring fund drive. We are a nonprofit, publicly funded station. That means the majority of the money we use to bring you shows and podcasts like Sound and Vision comes from listeners. Please consider donating to the show today. Go to kexp.org slash sound to donate, or you can click on the support the show link on the details page of this episode to donate today. We would also love it if you took a second to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps others know this podcast exists. Okay, that's it for Sound and Vision. I leave you with our final question of the show. Why does music matter? Here's Aushkesh. I think it matters because of a lot of things and for different reasons for people, you know. I know that um, music can help you through difficult times and... and um, make you feel better when you're you know when you're down that has been in my case i've I've gone through stuff like that you know where music has actually helped me um if you have some anger you can express that through music and get rid of it that way you know and um it's just so so much that it um it's good for you know